Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 5th of December, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Brian Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border, and Mark Anderson reporting from the USA. Uh, we're going to start off with strikes. Uh, and of course, the RMT yesterday uh, announced that they have rejected the Real Delivery Group's offer. Uh, and so they have asked for a meeting today, which as far as I know hasn't happened, uh, but the RMT, the real strikes therefore on, that follows postal strikes uh, on Thursday and Friday last week, and we've got the nursing strikes going on. But look, here's the point I wanted to highlight here. Um, this is more than just about pay for, for these people. So uh, the proposals from the, uh, from the employer um, are also conditional, according to this document, on your union accepting the following. Uh, that all workforce changes are accepted without reservation or industrial action, uh, closure of all ticket offices and displacement of all retail staff, creation of a new multi-skilled uh, station grades, a mass job severance program, uh, driver-only operations on trains, new arrangements for mandatory Sunday working, uh, a, a review of all on-train catering services, review of fleets, grades, working practices and depot driving, uh, flexible working contracts, working and rosters, mandatory adoption of new technology with no payment, uh, new attendance management scheme, review of stood off arrangements, not quite sure what those are, but uh, a new annual leave and sick pay arrangements. Um, so uh, David, just to welcome you to the programme, first of all, um, clearly much more. I mean, in the case of nursing, we've seen that the issue of patient safety is part and parcel of what's going on, but uh, certainly with the postal strikes and with the rail strikes, uh, there's an attempt to completely re-engineer the uh, contracts of employment. Yes, because because the background situation is changing, it's changing radically and it's changing in unpredictable ways. So uh, in order to keep the businesses viable, they have to respond in, in, in similar vein. So in the case of um, in the case of the post, well, we, we have a thing called email and it's it's totally changed. The technology has totally changed the market as technologies are totally changing, for example, the high street. Um, and in terms of transport, well, it's very, very government led and it's very highly regulated. And it is, of course, part of the 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 the, the dear green solution to all of the world's ails. So the the state is hugely involved in, in regulating and and in Scotland actually running the railways, but it's not going very well. After all, they did shut us all in our homes for two and a half years. This didn't do an awful lot for the rail industry. And you're seeing the after effects of that. They're needing to dramatically cut costs. They're needing huge improvements in the flexibility of the workforce in order to cope with the fact that the underlying business model that they were working on was destroyed, not least of which by uh, government COVID policy. Uh, well, David, I mean, this is a ridiculous thing for you to say. Uh, government COVID policy could not possibly be the reason for it or any other government policy. And I'm going to show you why. You're coming up to Christmas. It's unfair, in my view, for the unions uh, to really damage people's and disrupt people's lives and livelihoods at, at a time at Christmas. And they should really rethink and they should reflect on this because that is exactly what Putin wants to see, well, is that division. That Let's not divide. Let's come unfair. together. So clearly you need to rethink your position there, David, because it was Putin's fault all along. 
Well, there we go. You know, I, I have to also, not only do I have to read, read drink which pub I go to in Jerusalem, um, but I have to I have to rethink many things here. Did you like the use of the word unfair? This is this is this is trying to capture a word that the left have been uh, misusing for years. But now now no 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 the government's going to grab hold of this this idea of fairness, which of course doesn't mean anything. This is why it's such a good term for politicians. And we're going to say well it, well it's unfair. Yes, everything's unfair. Life's unfair. The amount of unfairness that we can point to is essentially unlimited. And um, he's found some more. Well done, him. Uh, David, I'll just uh, add to that that, of course, fairness comes into the childish vocabulary. It's not fair. So I think what we've got here is more echoing back that the general public are to be treated as children as, at all times. Um, but uh, let's just have one brief listen to what uh, Laura Kunzberg had to say, and then we could discuss that. No doubt. Of course, nobody would deny that President Putin's illegal war in Ukraine has exacerbated all of this. Do you think that's true? Would nobody deny that, Brian? Well, you can blame anything on Putin. I, I suspect that Father Christmas is going to be delayed because, you know, Putin will have done something to the reindeer. It doesn't matter what it is. You just say it's Putin and that that's the rubber stamp on it. Yes, uh, but David, what's going on in Scotland with uh, with coffin makers? Well, there's not a lot going on because uh, they're going on strike as well. You've got the Herald reporting uh, workers at the co-op's only British coffin factory in Glasgow have begun a week-long strike uh, for um, a pay rise. Um, Willie Thompson, Yates, uh, regional officer, said, quote, our members have been forced to take this action as a result of a below inflation pay offer. The co-op must recognise the contribution our members make and support them in the current cost of living crisis. Now, here we see, well, firstly, the, the, the extreme dislocation that inflation causes to every aspect of the economy, because you can sympathise with the workers, they're getting poorer, they're working just as hard, but the money no longer goes as far. But you can also sympathise with the employers because they can't pass those, those rises on very readily. And um, they are under huge, huge dislocating pressures as their supply chain chains break down under the, uh, the the effect of all the malinvestment that went before the inflationary uh, spike and the the problems that are now being made clear in the economy. Um, I wanted to highlight this one for one other reason. I'm old enough to remember 1979. This was the end of the Labour Party of the 1970s. They went for nearly two decades in the political wilderness after that loss. What was the thing that was the final straw for the British people? You couldn't bury your dead. I wonder if that one's coming for the Conservative Party this time. Mm. Uh, but in the meantime, what's the Fed up to? Well, um, they've, had, they've had a slight issue with losses. So this is from Arcadia Economics, uh, Ravi uh, Farber um, commenting on this. Um, the, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is showing a small problem. You see here, total treasury securities, that's T-bills, notes and bonds. So this is United States government debt that the federal bank holds. Um, the value of this, the fair value is 5.1 trillion, but they paid uh, five point, nearly 5.9 trillion. Uh, they've got a 700 billion loss on that account. Uh, and 
when it comes to mortgage-backed securities, because they buy them too, because, you know, what's not to love? Um, they bought um, $2.8 trillion worth of mortgage-backed securities that are now worth $2.3 trillion. Um, and, uh, and another nearly half a trillion loss on that. So the total is $1,125,302,000,000 losses on their balance sheet, um, which in anybody's um, uh, assessment must start to be at the point where it's adding up to quite a lot of money. Uh, indeed, but keep going. So, um, this is all caused by interest rates going up. As in, the, the, the value of these bonds is inversely re related to the interest rate. So as the interest rates go up, the price of the bonds go down and all the bonds on the Fed's book have to be revalued. And this is actually sucking real assets and out of the Federal Reserve System, which does have a tendency to undermine the dollar. At the same time, they're trying to reduce the money supply. Now, I've got here the, the M2. This is the sort of broader money supply issued by the, the, the Federal Reserve, uh, the Missouri Fed. Um, and what you'll see is a steady increase um, at, a, at, a, at a gradually increasing rate. The huge financial crisis of 2008 shows as a little upward blip, almost, almost at this scale, not visible in the uh, ever-increasing money supply. Uh, 2020 is the most remarkable thing on the chart. The money supply just went to the moon. Um, and then it kept increasing, increasing, increasing ever after until recently. And it has actually turned, and they have managed to bring down the money supply. We've got a, a graph that shows it at a different scale. And you see it's actually, it is actually going down. And this is essentially the first time it, in, in the history of that graph, which goes back to the 60s, where the money supply has actually gone down. Now, the key issue here is that in, a, in an economy based entirely on money printing, right, entirely on cheap or free money, creating bubbles, a bubble economy, they are now succeeding, albeit temporarily, in bringing down the money supply. This will break things. This will cause asset prices to collapse. And in response, I think, uh, they, they will go back to money printing. So that graph, we'll keep an eye on that, that graph will show whether the Federal Reserve are succeeding in their fight against inflation or whether they've actually broken something in the economy and they've abandoned that fight and we're going back to money printing. Time will tell. Okay, well, thank you for that, David. Now, Mark, welcome to the programme. Uh, you have uh, a, a, a graphic here uh, showing Representative Madsen Cawthorn from North Carolina talking about the Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, yeah, did you guys get the video? No, unfortunately we, we haven't, uh, Mark. That one didn't want to uh, play for us. Uh, so I've just taken the oh. quote. If you can't read it on screen, I'll read it for you because I know the print's a little bit uh, small. No, I, uh, I can read it. Okay, yeah. go ahead. No, no problem. Yeah, we'll roll with conscience here. Uh, Madison Cawthorn is the first member of Congress uh, born in the 1990s. He's a young one out of North Carolina. He holds the District 11 seat, just setting the table here, formerly held by Mark Meadows. Mark Meadows was also a Fed critic, but he went on to be chief of staff under Trump for about one year in a rather rocky part of Trump's presidency. 
But here it says on the screen, the Federal Reserve is poison to our nation, Representative Cawthorn said on the House floor recently. They are absolute master of our currency and in turn master of us all. Private banks should not have this much power. Uh, the reason I bring this up is not only this is the first time that a member of Congress has openly wrapped the Fed on the House floor in quite a long time, and I've been covering Congress on again, off again in person for about 12 years now. So you don't hear this much. Uh, but the other significant part about it is that Cawthorn represents a different kind of Republican that is pretty rare, but is actually the real Republican, the real conservative, the real constitutionalist. There are always backbenchers and minorities. Uh, about eight or 10 years ago, there used to be uh, Justin Amash from Michigan, who held up uh, Gerald Ford's old seat. Gerald Ford was the noted Michigan congressman who served on the Warren Commission investigating JFK. And Thomas Massey of Kentucky, another uh, kind of rebel Republican, uh, he got reelected gladly uh, to the House. And the late Walter Jones, who I interviewed once personally, he also came from North Carolina and was a, a member of these uh, rebel Republicans that don't agree with the big tent GOP party line. And then I mentioned Mark Meadows. So uh, uh, Madison Cawthorn is not only rightly criticizing the Fed for commandeering our economy, um, and he, he had a lot of good things to say, and I'll be looking into that more, but he represents uh, a welcome breath of fresh air in bringing back these um, uh, Republicans who are true constitutionalists and uh, are true conservatives, you might say, and, and represent um, hopefully what will become a trend. Uh, they're willing to buck the GOP party line. They're willing to work with Democrats and independents in certain crucial areas. And that can create a, a tectonic shift that kind of transcends the Democrat versus Republican conventional standoff that we always hear about. And the reason that's important is because Congress really could end the Fed if more people like Cawthorn were to come along, if this catches on, if this becomes viral, and they get around the standard red state, blue state, left wing, right wing dichotomy, and they, they unify in, in larger blocks, uh, they get a paradigm shift, and then they really could challenge the Fed. And for reasons that David just got ex uh, just got done explaining, the Fed really has to go. We shouldn't have private banks managing our money supply for their own perpetual profit. So uh, Madison Cawthorn, I think, is uh, showing hopefully what will become a long-term trend uh, in Congress. Okay, thank you for that, Mark. Now let's uh, move on then to, uh, well, other economic aspects, I suppose. Uh, oil tankers and, uh, well, Russian oil, the price is now going to be set at $60 a barrel. Uh, this is uh, the G7 have decided this, and the question is, how are they going to do it? Well, they're going to do it mainly through insurance. Um, so they're going to require uh, oil tankers that want to sail the seas uh, to have a license, uh, and they will only get a license if they're insured, and they're only going to be insured if the oil inside those tankers is costing no more than $60 a barrel. Um, so the UK in partnership with G7, Australia and the European Union have agreed this. Um, and the finance agreers, uh, ministers agreed to a cap in September. This is now the implementation of it. Uh, and legislation in the UK has been laid on the 3rd of November uh, as in the form of a statutory instrument made under the Sanctions and Anti-Money Laundering Act 2018. 
Um, so there you go. Let's see what the wonderful Jeremy Hunt had to say about this. The UK will stand with Ukraine and her people for as long as Putin's war continues. We will not waver in our support and we'll continue to look for new ways to clamp down on Putin's funding streams wherever we can. Uh, and I believe I'm correct in saying that the Russians have said, well, we can transport 80% or thereabouts of our own oil. And if we can't transport the rest, well, nobody's going to get it. So well, they don't seem phased by this. Well, in, we'll come on to that in a second. Let's uh, we'll see what OPEC Plus did, because o OPEC Plus includes Russia. And they decided that they were going to continue reducing production. Uh, and this uh, had the expected effect of pushing prices up today. Now, whether on a long-term basis this is going to uh, make any difference, uh, we have to wait and see. But if it does, we've got to remember that once again, uh, oil prices going up, which is feeding into inflation, is as a result of government policy. Uh, we'll just have a look and see where we are on a monthly basis. So it's, it's up uh, nearly 2% today, but uh, down 12% uh, over the past month. Um, so we'll see uh, what the long-term implications of this are. But here's an interesting thing, because it's not all, uh, it doesn't all seem to be uh, going to script, because here's the, uh, a part of the uh, comments from the Council of the EU. Uh, this is part of their statement. The Council also introduced an emergency clause, which allows the transport of oil beyond the price cap or the provision of technical assistance, brokering services or financial or financial assistance related to the transport uh, when these are necessary for the urgent prevention or mitigation of an event likely to have a serious or significant impact on human health uh, and safety or the environment or as a response to natural disasters. So it seems like they've given themselves a whole bunch of caveats there, Brian, to just keep taking uh, Russian oil because they could say that perhaps, well, the fact that, that we can't heat our homes in Germany over the winter would have an impact on human health and therefore we'll just take the oil anyway. At whatever price. Well, they also say there's an ongoing natural disaster, which is climate change, according to them. So, you know, this is a free hand, just play the rules as they would like. Yes. Uh, so here is uh, Dmitry Peskov saying, uh, we are analysing it now, the, this change. Some preparation has been made. Uh, we will not accept this cap and we will inform you after the analysis, which will be carried out quick, quite quickly. And as you say, uh, the Russians uh, have markets other than in the West. Um, we will see what the long-term implications of this are. David, any thoughts quickly? Well, uh, firstly, uh, this may be a huge boost to the Russian uh, insurance market because the naive idea that only London can insure ships this is not God-given. This is only because they've done this for a long time and tend to do it well. Now it's been the subject of manipula manipulation by politicians. This may not go so well. Um, secondly, if they manage to impose the cap, they'll make all Russian oil the most desirable product because it's because it's going to be cheap. So, uh, well, the Russians have already said they're not going to sell it at that price, David. Well, uh, we'll, we'll see, but the, the, they'll... You'll, you'll, you initiate smuggling, you initiate all sorts of um, dark arts as the market tries to right itself and it tries to clear at the market's clearing price. This is going to be, I would suggest, hilarious. This will not work well. I'll, I'll just add to that, David. Some of the uh, reports I was reading over the weekend suggested that the West is going to say it's OK for India to... Uh, rebag the oil and and uh, re-export it which i found particularly interesting 
I wonder if our Prime Minister had any hand in such a deal, if that is true. Mm. Well, let's come on to the serious subject of war dead in the uh, war in Ukraine. Uh, the BBC is really becoming, uh, well, not quite sure what to say, but uh, we know that they've been operating as the uh, spokespeople for Zelensky for some time. And here is the bizarre claim, Ukraine war Zelensky aid reveals up to 13,000 war dead. Um, now, let's have a look at the uh, comment in the article itself. It says up to 13,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed since the start of Russia's invasion, a senior official said. I read that figure. I was just incredulous that the BBC would bother to print it. Um, he said that, uh, sorry, so the Ukrainian side said between 10,000 and 13,000 troops had died. Um, it went on to say that uh, this particular gentleman had said in June that between 100 and 200 Ukrainian soldiers were dying annually. Daily. Daily, sorry, <laughs> dying daily, apologies. And uh, that was then contrasted with the US General Mark Milley saying that around 100,000 Russian and 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers had been killed or wounded since the start of the war. So this is a huge spread of figures here and we're, we're to believe that uh, none of the NATO systems, the UK or the US intelligence systems are capable of working out what the casualties are. Uh, well, the BBC strapped across this the question, can we say how many people have died in Ukraine? And if you have a look at the BBC reports, they specialise in a whole lot of infographics, uh, where here we're to believe back in July that the casualties were a relatively small number, tragic nonetheless, but still small. But this is how the BBC is selling the propaganda to the uh, public. Uh, so you can see this little graphic clocking up to uh, over 10,000, 10,470. Then we've got other graphics mainly focusing on Russian military deaths. Uh, so this is going to the 27th of June this, this year, 35,450 for Ukra uh, Ukrainian um, deaths. Sorry, that has come from the Russians. Um, here we've got 10,000 deaths reported in Ukraine from another source. So the point we're trying to make here is that it just appears the BBC has no idea what's happening. But if we come back to the admitted losses, which were, have been reported widely of 100, 200, 300 men killed in action per day. The war's now in its 283rd day, so 100 per day is 28,300 losses on the Ukrainian side. At 300 per day, we're into 84,900. Um, but we've now got Russian troops um, coming in, over 300,000 troops with massive amounts of artillery. And there's already been reports of Ukrainian killed in Bakhmut, around 500 per day. Uh, but we've also got this claim of 100,000 Ukrainian military dead. And uh, this uh, um, insert from the BBC article is also picking up on the fact that a few days ago, uh, the head of the EU Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, said that 100,000 Ukrainian troops had been killed. Let's just have a look at this little bit of video clip to hear what she did say, because this has now been removed. More than 100,000 Ukrainian military officers have been killed so far. 
Well, she uses the term officers, but everybody agreed she was talking about military casualties. But surprisingly, she was confused. She made a mistake. She didn't know the correct figures. And so that has been pulled and the BBC is uh, very quick to point that out. Um, so the reality is this, that the Ukrainian killed in action is so high that certainly Zelensky didn't report them because of the damage it would do inside Ukraine. And of course, the BBC dare not report them because that would enable people in UK and the West to understand the true state of the war. But if we go in a different direction, uh, the fact is that most battlefield deaths and injuries are caused by shelling. Ukraine has admitted that Russia fires up to six to nine shells for every Ukrainian shell. So if we take Russian killed at 40,000, uh, we make it lower than the claim by the USA, then Ukrainian losses could be as high as 240,000 killed. So the BBC simply doesn't know what the facts are, but we know that the casualties at the moment for the Ukrainians are horrific. And uh, these are some of the reports that have emerged over the last few days. Bakhmut is littered with Russian corpses, apparently. Uh, no mention of uh, the Ukrainian death. So this seems to be a very one-sided war. Uh, Ukraine live inside Bakhmut front line, littered with corpses and colossal losses. And this is more to the reality of the situation. Um, but it's surprisingly, it's coupled with the fact that uh, the Western media is still on the lines of, is, the Russia, is Russia running out of ammunition? How much longer can it keep fighting? And uh, apparently Wednesday, the US Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was telling journalists that Russia has struggled with logistics and they're very short of ammunition. But the reality is, of course, that the Russian attacks are increasing. So I'm just going to call this dross reporting. And we're going to contrast it by the fact that we've now got Western media uh, quite rightly pointing out that the British Army in particular would be out of ammunition in a week if it was uh, fighting in the Ukraine conflict due to the intensity. And uh, this is just, well, what can we call it? Cognitive dissonance by mainstream media. The reality is that Britain, US and NATO are out of ammunition. This is why they can't supply it to Ukraine in, in the uh, quantity necessary. Meanwhile, Russia, we see no sign of, of the ammunition or missile uh, shortages, no sign of it running out. So let's contrast that with a little video clip of the Finnish Prime Minister talking with wide-eyed surprise about what was actually taking place in Ukraine. To buy energy from Russia, to close in those economic ties. And, and we thought that this would prevent a war, that we would have such a close ties to Russia that it would be uh, totally madness to, to go to war with, with any European countries. But this was proven entirely wrong. Well, there, there we are, David. I could see your face as that little clip came up. A young woman just totally bemused and surprised uh, that she couldn't work out what had happened, even though Putin clearly told the West what was going to happen if they continue to press NATO, and um, in particular nuclear weapons, up to the Russian borders. He did. 
and uh, NATO uh, were on the record that uh, the Ukrainian ascension to NATO was uh, was assured. It was a certainty. It was just a matter of timing. This is what this is the statement that was made, and this was made and not rescinded, despite the uh, the dispute over the Crimea, uh, which made clearly any NATO um, expansion into the Ukraine a powder keg and and a, 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 a fast sprint to war. Um, and it was known in the West that we were pushing the Russians to a point where they saw their vital interests at stake and would react. Um, and when that reaction came, Ukraine was going to have the country wrecked, and that's exactly what's happened. She didn't see it coming, but there were many wiser voices in the West that did. Unfortunately, Western governments, uh, Western leaders, were not listening to any of these wiser voices. Yeah, absolutely. Well, just wanted to contrast um, that uh, very naive uh, Finnish prime minister with uh, somebody I'm going to call a real lady. We've shown this clip before, but let's think about the contrast. I voted against this report. Its timing is pretty appropriate, coming as it does a few short weeks after the 11th anniversary of the day Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi was killed during the NATO assault on Libya, sodomized with a bayonet and shot in the head. The NATO intervention in Libya carried out in the name of protecting freedom, democracy and human rights is one we do well to remember as NATO plays out its proxy war in Ukraine in the name of, you've guessed it, freedom, democracy and human rights. Because what happens after NATO intervenes in your country on this basis? Terror, death, lawlessness, rape, poverty, starvation. Libya is a country riven by conflict, its economy shattered, its population formerly the wealthiest in Africa, ridden and mired in poverty. Migrants are bought and sold in slave markets. A million people rely on humanitarian aid. It's a country of mass graves, of crimes against humanity. This is NATO's legacy. This is NATO's rights strategy Herzlichen and democracy. Dank. So there we are, and we'll just uh, end on this incredible article that the Express decided to uh, uh, publish, Ukraine to trigger military collapse in Russia uh, with moral shattering, sorry, with morale shattering spring offensive. Um, how anybody could believe this, I simply do not know. It's either fantasy or drugs or both, but the uh, press seemed prepared to print it. Uh, we just remind ourselves that the death at the moment unfolding in Ukraine uh, is not the responsibility of an organisation. It's due to decisions that people have made. and We need to be focusing on those people and getting them to stop the fighting. Uh, and not just in Ukraine either. So here is a report from Sahara Reporters. Uh, weapons from Russia-Ukraine war now slipping into Africa used by terrorists. Uh, so this is uh, Mohamedou Buhari, who's the uh, Nigerian president. He's saying, regrettably, the situation in the Sahel and the raging war in Ukraine serve as major sources of weapons and fighters that bolster uh, the ranks of terrorists in the Lake Chad region. He's talking about Boko Haram here. Uh, a substantial proportion of the arms and ammunition procured to execute the war in Libya continues to find its way into the Lake Chad region and other parts of Sahel. And he went on to say that that's now being supplemented by weapons uh, from Ukraine as well. Uh, but in the meantime, 
the Financial Times, and as uh, Brian has alluded to this already, but the Financial Times talking about the, the situation with respect to the so-called hard reality of the West weapons, the West's weapons capacity, and they're saying this, the UK has turned to a third party uh, which it's declined to identify to restock its depleted stores of N-law anti-tank anti missiles. Now, uh, Brian, I asked you earlier what was meant by third party, and we don't really know, but uh, my question is, first of all, my question is, is what's happening here, because you suggested black market, uh, is what's happening that Western weapons are going into Ukraine, a proportion of those are being siphoned off to the black market, some are going to the Sahel and other uh, trouble spots in the world, but some going onto the black market. Could the West, could Britain be buying those back off the black market and then reshipping them out to Ukraine again in some kind of oh. circular motion, which is effectively funding terrorism around the world? I think there's a simple answer to that question, Mike. And yes, it's happening. And there's no question this has started to happen because uh, there are already many very good corroborated reports of weapons from Ukraine appearing in South America, for instance, and we know they're heading out into Syria. Uh, why won't the UK say who it's buying these uh, end-law anti-tank missiles from? Because it's either uh, a third-rate country and it's too embarrassing for UK to admit that it doesn't have the weapon stocks, or it's gone on to the world weapons market. It's gone to the black market. Yes. Uh, so just to finish off on the uh, Financial Times article, weapon stocks in many European countries are even skimpier. They said when France sent six Caesar self-preferred howitzers to Ukraine in October, it could only do so by diverting a Danish order for the high-tech artillery. I mean, this is... I know that during the Cold War, Brian, we were in the position where... Uh, there was this issue of, uh, you know, how long would you last if the Russians invaded? But we're, back, we're in worse position now than we were then, it seems. Yes, although what I will say, uh, Mike, is, you know, during the Cold War period, certainly in the Royal Navy, we watched as weapon stocks declined. So uh, ships were at sea with very, very low levels of weapons on board and this was a matter of concern for many people but the policy from above continued. The other thing we've seen in the West is instead of dispersing ammunition stocks and facilities around the country to protect them, uh, the policy was no we've got to save money, they've all got to be brought together and of course if you bring the facilities together you make them uh, an even bigger and easier target. So crazy decisions being made. David. Well, the, 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 the uh, factor behind that, Brian, was who is the threat from? Right? Because if uh, the view was that there are no external threats anymore, everyone's going to get along. We had the end of history. There was no uh, country that was going to be a threat to uh, Western and American um, hegemony and control. Therefore, you didn't have to distribute your weapon systems. You wanted to put them in one place because who were you protecting them from? Terrorists and your own population, right? The nasty far right, the nasty Muslims, the nasty fill in blank. Therefore, it was rational if you accept the premises that they were, they were operating under, which is we're never going to have another external war and all of that is gone from history. That was as naive a position as we're seeing from the Finnish Prime Minister. 
Uh, there's quite, an ad quite a debate on that one, David, which perhaps we'll keep for another time. Well, right? we can talk about it in extra. <laughs> Let's talk about that in extra. Yeah. OK, uh, but David, uh, we appear to have doubled the size of the Navy. Well, we, I, I mean, it is, it is a good news story, and I think we should recognise the achievement. We've got um, HMS Glasgow's in the water. HMS Glasgow is a Type 26 frigate. This is about 6,900 tonnes. Uh, 161 personnel, 7,000 nautical miles range, and it does 26 knots, and it has uh, taken to the water for the first time. Uh, we see here uh, STV News got some pictures uh, of the ship uh, just before its launch. It was taken on to a barge from the, uh, a submersible barge uh, from the shipyard in, uh, in Glasgow, uh, sailed down the Clyde, uh, launched into the water via the barge, and then towed back up for finishing works. Uh, we see another photograph from STV News here of it um, making its way uh, onto the barge. And uh, we see uh, some tweets from, from George Allison as uh, I think possibly taken from, um, uh, well, it's either a flat or is it maybe the uh, Erskine Bridge, as the, the, the ship comes back up the Clyde, uh, pulled by tugs uh, to uh, move alongside and uh, undergo finishing off works. So uh, there is a Type 26 frigate. Um, it, does, it does show you how uh, good uh, Glaswegian shipbuilding can be if the SMP are not anywhere near it. Uh, but of course, it doesn't get over the main problem with the size of the Navy, what it's for, what we're asking it to do. And also, and I was looking for this, whatever happened to HMS Prince of Wales? There's nothing in the news about this. It's complete silence, from which I conclude the problem with the propulsion system must be very serious indeed. Thoughts? Well, I think you're absolutely right on that. I was just wondering what the temperature of the water was there for HMS Glasgow, but hopefully that won't be a problem. Not in the Clyde, I wouldn't have thought. But anyway, okay, if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, uh, please head over to uh, community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, you could pick up something up from the UK column shop, but if you're going to do that, then I would strongly urge everybody to get their orders in this week, uh, because with postal strikes and so on, uh, it's going to be tricky uh, to guarantee. We, we can't guarantee, but it's going to be tricky to get stuff out to everybody by Christmas. Uh, and uh, but please do share material on various platforms. Uh, I'd just like to remind everybody uh, that there is uh, a YouTube channel uh, which is uh, putting UK Column material up. That's at UK Column Extracts. Uh, and thanks to Kenny for all the hard work that he's doing there. We would just like to ask everybody uh, to use this to share uh, extracts from the UK Column News uh, as you see fit. Yeah, excellent. Uh, and David, that takes us on to the a conference yes yeah, so we're very the uk Column's very delighted to announce uh, that uh, uh, we're um we're organizing a, a conference in glasgow called the fernetti conference for the 200 women who suffered for well, 200 women who so far come forward uh to uh, confirm they suffered abuse at fernetti house in angus uh this has uh, been done in consultation uh with the fresh start foundation and it's to be held on Sunday, the 22nd of January. And it's at St. Luke's, an uh, arts and music venue in Bain Street in Glasgow. That's uh, near Barrowlands and uh, it's nice and central. So I hope we'll have a huge turnout from the ladies uh, who 
are campaigning for justice over Fornetti. This will be the first time that they will all have a chance to meet each other. Uh, there will be speakers and we'll confirm times and the speaking arrangements uh, in the weeks to come. Okay, and uh, a special event? And we are doing a special on Thursday, so uh, kicking off uh, about 4.30 in the afternoon. It's a UK column special. Along the same lines as the Doctor for COVID ethics events we've run in the past, but this one's on education. It's called Education Not Indoctrination, and we'll be looking at uh, various aspects of the manipulation of our children through the schooling system, including the sexualisation of children, uh, including critical race theory being taught, queer theory being taught, and, and all of these uh, related issues, and the pushback against them, including the, uh, the, the legal action taken by the ladies in Wales, and, uh, and many other practical moves to push back and fight back against what has been done to our children by our government. Uh, and just to clarify, David, that's Thursday the 15th of December, not this Thursday, so it's Thursday week. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Yes, Thursday the 15th, yes. Okay, well, let's have a look at a couple of emails that have come into the UK column. And this one, um, well, it's fascinating, and I shall be watching your face, David. Um, a lady called Elizabeth says, just seen this on local community church Facebook. And the text of the conversation says this, I'm writing on behalf of transforming communities together, time to tweed concerning our current project, Real Conversations, as part of the Department for Leveling Up Faith New Deal Scheme. We're currently at the stage of advertising our small conversations in Whitley Bay, happening uh, Tuesday the 6th of December, Tuesday the 10th, January. And we're reaching out to the various communities and faith groups of all kinds in the wider Whitley Bay area. We're looking for participants with an interest in community action or who help run or use community faith or youth groups in Whitley Bay. Um, it's, uh, it's going to make Whitley Bay great again. Our small conversations will culminate at the end of January with a big conversation, a celebration of what we've discussed and learned. David, I was only able to read this very quickly before the news, but I smell big society here. To me, this is uh, very much part of David Cameron's original big society coming here, transforming communities, levelling up, faith new deal scheme sounds good well it, it's it's one of these i've seen more and more of these suspicious word salads where we've got all the buzzwords in together and it, it doesn't actually make any sense it, it's not english it's speaking some other language um there's elements of marxism there's elements of 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 big society there's elements of essentially state control and co-op of this of, of the third sector on and here of um, what they call the faith community right so this is this is everyone's got to be brought together uh, we've got to control the fun we've got to make sure everyone's um, following the agenda we can't have people going out there and you know doing anything radical like having a church and preaching the word of God and not really caring if they offend people or if they comply with the current government guidelines, they are, they are speaking what they believe to be the truth. And I think that's viewed as being problematic. And we've got to get everyone um, uh, on the one script. 
Yeah, indeed. OK, well, one more here, an email that uh, somebody sent in on the subject of PESCO, excuse me, of PESCO. Uh, and what this is showing is people are taking action and we're, we're delighted that this is happening. Let's have a look at this. So uh, this is um, an email that was sent to Helen Morgan MP, UK membership of PESCO. Uh, saying on the 7th of October in Italy, UK Prime Minister Liz Truss signed up UK Armed Forces to elements of the EU PESCO agreement. How and what was the instrument used to bypass Parliament, allowing sovereignty to be ceded? Uh, well, it did get a response. Uh, Dear John, thank you for writing to me regarding uh, PESCO. The UK government decided not to sign up to the PESCO However, it can still participate in specific PESCO capability projects on a case-by-case -case basis. However, any involvement will be subject to the rules on third state participation, which were agreed on the 5th of November 2020. I share your concerns regarding PESCO. Sorry, I shall share your concerns regarding PESCO with the Ministry of Defence and ensure that any response I receive is shared with you. In the meantime, if there's anything else I can do to assist you, please do not hesitate to get in touch. So this is demonstrating that when an MP is challenged, they do respond. And uh, they did produce a letter from the Ministry of Defence. So let's just blow that up on screen. And uh, uh, the reply says this, the UK's application to join the Dutch-led PESCO military mobility product project has been approved, but we have not yet signed any agreement. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has underlined the importance of addressing any impediments to moving military personnel and assets across Europe at pace. Joining the project, just one of 60 projects under the EU's PESCO framework, would better enable the UK to shape the rules and requirements which impact the movement of forces across the EU and to reinforce NATO's flanks if required. Ukraine's just the gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. So I thought you might pick up on this one, Mike, because I know that you haven't seen it previously. Uh, but we're going to say people can freeze that full reply and see it on screen. But don't worry, we are clear of all matters to do with the European Union, except when we're not. Mm. OK, well, uh, Mark, let's bring you back in. and. Uh, um, you're still talking about voting and uh, you've got an article here about Atlanta. What's going on? In the interest of continuity, I'm keeping a close eye on the mechanics and uh, progress of elections and the election machinery. And Voter GA, a group I've mentioned before, is one of the most on the ball groups out there uh, that's nonpartisan. And none of this is about favoring one candidate or party over another, even though the mass media cartel always gives the impression that if you question elections, <clears throat> you're simply pro-Republican, far right wing, pro-Trump and all that. But Voter GA, Voters Organized for Trusted Election Results in Georgia, or Voter GA, released this December 2nd. And I quote, Voter GA released more evidence today substantiating the 20,000 plus vote decline that Herschel Walker's U.S. Senate election totals experienced around 10 p.m. on election night. Before and after screenshots of interim election results reported by Georgia Public Broadcasting, which was also in association with Associated Press, for the 2022 general election showed the inexplicable decrease for Herschel Walker. And I have the specifics right here in front of me that I wrote down. At 9.59 p.m., November 8, 2022, 
Herschel Walker had 1,551,534 votes, and Raphael Warnock, the Democrat incumbent, had 1,518, 513 votes, or excuse me, 1,518,513 votes, pardon me. And that's that was uh, called 66% of the votes counted. Four minutes later, mark my words, four minutes later, that evening, November 8, 2022, Herschel Walker's vote totals, not a percentage, but the actual vote totals dropped by 21,586 votes. Meanwhile, in that same four-minute span, the incumbent Raphael Warnock gained just over 4,000 votes. Now, there's just simply no way that you can lose over 20,000 votes unless there's something really, 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 really strange going on. And so far, according to Voter GA, the Secretary of State's office run by Brad Raffensperger is refusing to look into this. And Voter GA stopped short of saying definitively whether this so-called anomaly made a difference as to whether there'd be a runoff election or not. As UK column viewers might recall, when I last mentioned this, tomorrow on December 6th, there's going to be a state-required runoff election between Warnock and Walker. The reason being is, according to the Associated Press, if neither of the dominant candidates gets more gets 50% or more of the vote, and a libertarian candidate helps trim the vote down for the two major candidates, if they don't achieve more than 50% of the vote under Georgia law, then there has to be a runoff. Uh, in other words, they called it too close to call, and there'll be that runoff tomorrow. But the question remains is if Walker had not had this inexplicable vote drop in a four-minute time span, would there be a runoff tomorrow? And would it be true that Walker would have ended up being the new U.S. senator defeating the incumbent Warnock? So this just shows you um, how pernicious this is. And it's a very serious matter. Now, Garland Favrito, just to summarize, he's the founder of Voter GA and a very good source. There is no technical explanation, he said, that I can see for one candidate's vote totals to decrease dramatically during an election, especially when his opponent's totals are increasing at the exact same time. We are concerned that this indicates some type of electronic vote manipulation that the Secretary of State's office is unwilling to investigate and unwilling to explain. That puts the runoff at risk of the same problem. In other words, voter GA uh, anticipates similar problems tomorrow during the runoff. So this is a classic example, and voter GA, again, does not support one party or one candidate over another as Raffensperger's office and other critics claim. But this is a classic example of the kind of anomalies that happen on a regular basis, at least a semi-regular basis, and yet the media says that anybody that cites this stuff is crazy. But the evidence is all too clear. So I, this is just an update to keep the continuity of this matter going. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. Now, you're going to take us on, I think, to do with matters uh to do with borders um, down in Texas. Uh, we've got two little film clips here which we're going to play on screen. There's no sound. Um, are you happy? Uh, one of them shows some men climbing over a wall and the other is a, is a line of men. Uh, the wall one, I think, is the first one. Is that correct? Yeah, I believe so. These are 
videos and I'm describing it of illegals entering people's private homes who live at or near the border, the Texas border with Mexico. And this is a very common occurrence. This is not an uncommon thing. Um, there's another video clip among many that I've gotten, and these are all firsthand videos. These don't come from other news sources. These come directly from people I know on the border or people that know people I know on the border. And it's security cameras or it's their own phones. And there's lots of things that I'm receiving that never see the light of day in other alternative media or the mass media cartel, the conventional media. And so um, the situation is much more porous. The border is much more porous than Governor Greg Abbott of Texas is letting on, even though he doesn't downplay it too much. The other video uh, that did, didn't happen to get shown today, we, we just showed the two that um, uh, the black and white videos from security cameras where, where illegals are entering people's private properties uh, unmolested, but another video shows a uh, produce farmer. She grows fruit in a large scale area near the border uh, out in the greater Eagle Pass area. And that video that I watched just yesterday, uh, she's saying that 100, 150, 200, 300 uh, illegals are crossing into her land every day and being loaded onto buses by the Border Patrol processed oftentimes through private charity NGOs, and then they're sent inland and released into the United States, contrary to the claims of Governor Abbott. And I think you want to show something about Texas border deaths probably in a moment. But the main story here is that Governor Abbott is saying that under Operation Lone Star, they're really getting serious and that they're uh, largely deporting, uh, apprehending, and sending back and repelling those coming across the border. But two ranchers that I spoke with and another uh, private ranch hand who prefer, prepare, excuse me, prefers to be anonymous, uh, they all told me in exclusive interviews that uh, Governor Abbott's Operation Lone Star, in their view, is a fraud. It's a major deception. They're scooping up the illegals who are crossing the border. They're processing them and giving them giving them their itinerary, sometimes expensive plane tickets and or uh, expensive bus tickets. Uber rides are even included. And they're sending them inland under the vain hope that they'll show up for their court hearings later. And so that's the major dichotomy here is that Abbott saying he's got this thing you know, at least virtually under control, or he's getting close to the point where he's got things under control. But the ranchers I talked to, including um, uh, Mr. Blair and Mr. Wright, I'll just use their last names for now. They're telling me that uh, the numbers are huge in terms of who's coming across the border. They are working with Yako Buyans. He's a South African filmmaker. Uh, his last name is B-O-O-Y-E-N-S, Jakob Buyans, I believe that's how you say it. This South African filmmaker is documenting the large hordes of people coming across the border and also documenting with firsthand observations that the DPS, the Texas State Police, and the Border Patrol and other elements of the state and federal government, are, especially the state government, are acting as almost like tour guides. They're basically helping them get ashore out of the Rio Grande River, uh, cleaning them up, um, taking their 
belts and shoelaces temporarily. They, they kind of strip them down a bit. They put all their belongings in plastic bags. Then they're taken to the border patrol stations and the private charities and uh, they're given their stuff back. They, they all are, uh, they either have or are given working cell phones and then they're given their travel itinerary and uh, escorted into uh, uh, buses and, and other transportation arrangements and allowed to enter the United States um, interior. And so um, these are very strong allegations that uh, Abbott, Governor Abbott, is being accused of virtual treason. Uh, at the very least, he's being accused of a large betrayal in saying that he's repelling and uh, deporting a lot of these people and apprehending them. But what these ranchers are saying is far, uh, far from that being true. They're saying that the, uh, the illegals are being released inland, uh, far contrary to Abbott's claims. Okay, so, Mark, um, uh, let, let's, let's move on then to the issue of, uh, of deaths. Uh, what's, the sort of, what's the scale of the deaths as people come over the border? Well, the, the two ranchers I've talked to, who are not the only ones I've spoken to over the last few months, but the two I just talked to the other day, um, they find uh, dead bodies on their ranches or neighboring ranches because a lot of them work together on a fairly regular basis. But there are also children that die, um, some of them stillbirths, uh, pregnant women trying to come over the border, uh, they often do, um, or, or toddlers and things like that. They die from exposure, from the hot weather, from uh, lack of food or, or drink or whatever the case might be. And um, I believe you had a video of that one that you yes. wanted to show, unless you want to show a still frame. No, we're going we're gonna to play a few seconds of this. Let's have a listen. This, this past year was criminal in this past year. Yeah, this is. This, this past year was. This kind of brings to light how terrible this whole situation is. It's all like a bad dream. You keep thinking that you're going to wake up and every, none of this is going to be how things really are. It's going to be normal. You know, these signs on these crosses, uh, you know, baby Jane Doe, baby John Doe, you know, I mean, makes you sick. And then we find out how they're buried. That's uh, tragic stuff. Um... Mark, and it's, it's obvious that this uh, policy is not just a policy for the US. Many people in our chat box today commenting that the same thing is happening in England, in Ireland, in many other countries. So this, this is clearly a globalist uh, policy which is causing this mass migration and the breakdown of nation states. Yeah, let me comment on that, Brian. I appreciate what you're saying. And I, I do want to look at what other countries are doing for an article I'm planning um, and what they're experiencing. But one of the ranchers, Mr. Wright, he came out and said that he thinks this is part of, and this is just his opinion. I'm not saying it's true. I'm not saying it's false. He believes Governor Abbott is still under orders of the Bush family, even though old man Bush passed away in 2019. You know, you recall that old man Bush, George H.W., was a New England import into Texas and then the media characterized him as a true Texan. He's got Texas in his heart. But according to this rancher, Mr. Wright, 
uh, Randy Wright is his full name. He doesn't mind me saying that. He owns about 300 and some acres on the border. Uh, according to Mr. Wright, he believes that the Bush family, that, that power structure that's embedded, especially in College Station, Texas, which is where Texas A&M is, that's uh, closely associated, that university with the Bush family. He believes that controlling element of the Bush family still uh, has sway over the governor's office and that Abbott is answering to that power structure, which this rancher even connected to the Rothschilds, uh, in his view, uh, that dynasty, that uh, old line dynasty that uh, is pushing globalism and has for a very long time, and that Texas is under globalist orders not to arrest the illegal invasion, to basically let it happen, but put on a good show under Operation Lone Star and, you know, fake right and go left, you might say, or fake nationalist and go internationalist. And this is, this was, this is the rancher's view on the situation. And the, uh, the collateral damage is children. Uh, and that those were graves of children, uh, which, and that, that was filmed by a very close contact of mine uh, with whom I met in person just the other day when he got back from making that video. So, yeah, it's a very serious situation with very serious allegations being leveled at Governor Abbott. So I'll be close, uh, keeping a very close eye on this uh, okay. over the next uh, several months. Thanks, okay. Mark. Thank you very much for that. OK, let's uh, move, come back to the UK then and the online safety bill back in Parliament this week. Uh, well, today, in fact. Uh, oh, sorry, no, we're not onto that yet. We're on to uh, uh, the COVID-19 vaccine damage bill. I do apologise. This is Christopher Chope's bill. This is in Parliament on Friday. Um, so uh, that's getting its second reading. And so we, fr Friday is the day that it's in. Everybody, I think, should be writing to their MP and advising them that uh, your wish is for them to support this bill. OK, well, just one more email here, which I found fascinating to the column. It said, hello, Brian and the team. I just thought I'd let you know that yesterday I posted on Facebook the video from your page featuring Adam Rowland talking about damage caused to himself by this C vaccine. Not only was it removed from my page, but I now have a 24 hour ban on Facebook. So uh, just incredible to see what's happening here. And this was another email sent in with an interesting story. Um, talking about uh, Australia, Sydney Hospital, uh, where the hospital or at least wards in the hospital have been offered to TV and movie companies to use as filming venues. Um, now, this was ultimately challenged and the policy reversed, but nevertheless, just an incredible situation where a hospital, hospital staff would be saying, come and use the wards. We haven't got any other use for them. Come and use them to film. And I'll just add to that uh, what I regard as a good news story. The male here, anti-vaxxer nurse who injected up to 8,600 elderly patients with salt water instead of COVID vaccine walks free from court in Germany. So the Daily Mail sh uh, was shocked. She was actually found guilty of six counts of intentional assault. Uh, by virtue of the fact that she obviously refused to give people vaccinations. And uh, we've got more scaremongering coming up because uh, we are now being told in UK that uh, um, antibiotics are a problem. And big headlines now about strep A. Now, I know that Debbie will be speaking about this on Wednesday, but you can see the media ramping up the fear campaign 
And of course, if you've got a fear campaign, you're going to have the BBC fully involved uh, because their story ends up with these two headlines, London child dies with strep A bacterial disease and primary school pupil dies after catching disease. So um, just incredible to see this propaganda coming through. Yes. OK, uh, well, we'll give you a bit of a preview, but there you go. Online safety bill in Parliament today. Um, and uh, that's five month delay. But nonetheless, uh, aside from freedom of information, uh, freedom of speech issues have been highlighting. Uh, there is the issue of end to end encryption. I just wanted to briefly mention this uh, now. Uh, several weeks ago, 70 organizations uh, published an open letter to Rishi Sunak on this issue because they're particularly concerned about uh, two main aspects of this, forcing private messaging services uh, to get rid of end-to-end -end encryption or at least provide a backdoor. Uh, now, why would uh, they comply with this? Well, of course, as we saw with Apple recently, who decided that uh, allegedly on the basis of a request from the Chinese government to restrict airdrop capabilities in China because the protesters there, the COVID lockdown protesters were using uh, airdrop to transfer files between each other. Uh, Apple restricted that use just prior to the uh, main uh, anti-government protests there. Of course, Apple will ask uh, communications uh, apps to be removed from the App Store in the event that they don't comply with national legislation. But then there's this, which perhaps is uh, even more insidious, and that's uh, client-side scanning. Uh, and well, what is client-side scanning? Well, this is uh, the idea, the concept that uh, not only should you not be saying or publishing certain things online, that you should be prevented from actually uploading them in the first place. And so the idea is that your device scans for certain types of content before it gets added uh, to an encrypted chat or to whatever it happens to be. Uh, and it uh, is either prevented from being uploaded or in some cases uh, law enforcement would be uh, told about it and, and informed about it. Um, so this is all part and parcel of the online safety bill. Uh, it's not great for freedom of speech. Of course, the, the usual trope of uh, child safety is being um, rolled out to justify it. As always. As always. Uh, David, let's come on to Davos. A little advert for Davos 2023. Uh, this is uh, from a blog called The Dossier, um, which uh, has a, a note of their agenda. Uh, the theme is partly going to be cooperation in a fragmented world. I wonder who fragmented it. Uh, and subjects include, quote, addressing the current energy and food crisis in the context of a new system for energy, climate and nature. It's all new, you see. And uh, the dossier translates that as essentially the World Economic Forum wants you to eat bugs while energy becomes unaffordable due to the purpose purposeful destruction of the global reliable energy sector. Seems a fair assessment. Um, next, we've got uh, a, a, an agenda for addressing the current high inflation, low growth, high debt economy in the context of a new system. It's all new. New system for investment, trade and infrastructure. And they translate that as blaming Putin and COVID for their reckless Keynesian money uh, policy pursuits. Again, I'd agree with that. Uh, three, addressing the current industry headwinds. <laughs> headwinds, yeah. In the context of a new system for harnessing frontier technology for private sector innovation and resilience. Um, 
basically the translation is ESG policies are failing because they're crushing businesses, but they want you to sacrifice this in order to save Gaia. Uh, item four, addressing the current social vulnerabilities in the context of a new system for work, skills and care. I'm, I'm really noticing how new all of this is. Um, there's no new thing under the sun, and I'm sure we'll prove that when we get to 2023. Um, and they say this is bumper sticker jargon to convince you to hand over more of your personal sovereignty and uh, rights to technocratic tyrants. And finally, addressing the current geopolitical risks in the context of a new system for dialogue and cooperation in a multipolar world. Uh, more hoax stuff and more coercion. Actually, I think that's probably uh, rather suggests that the UN may be on the way out and we need something bigger and better. But um, in order just to prove, ladies and gentlemen, that um, the column is not just about doom and gloom, we do value the arts and high culture as well. We've got here an article from The Guardian um, from last year's Davos, an artist put Greta Thunberg's Davos speech onto canvas. Northern Irish painter Jack Coulter, one of, one of Mike's own team here, used the climate activist words and music uh, to create the piece. And uh, we, have, we have a picture of it here. There you go. That is, me. that is delightful. Okay, thank you for that, David. Sticking, <laughs> sticking with internationalist uh, issues, uh, Vanessa was talking about euthanasia on Friday and particularly uh, the Canadian euthanasia program, which is called MADE. Uh, and uh, well, I just wanted to highlight this article from CBC. Former Paralympian tells MPs Veterans Department offered her assisted death. So what are they saying? A paraplegic former member of the Canadian military shocked MPs on Thursday by testifying that the Department for Veterans Affairs offered her in writing the opportunity for medically assisted death and even offered to provide the equipment. Now, what she was asking for, I believe, uh, was a, a ramp for a wheelchair in her home. Uh, but they thought that the, if she was suffering too much uh, without it, that she should probably just die. Uh, I have a letter saying, she's being quoted here, I have a letter saying that if you're so desperate, madam, we can offer you made medical assistance in dying, said Gother, uh, Gother uh, who was uh, first injured her back in training incident in 1989. So what I, what I find interesting about that, um, Mike, is as you were going through into my head came that about 10 years ago, we were being approached by young uh, military personnel, Army Royal Marines who'd got PTSD. And they were telling us that they had been told by the psychiatric team supposedly looking after them to commit suicide. And we heard this from a number of different individuals from different regiments, uh, Army Royal Marine units from different parts of the country. We attempted to talk to senior Royal Marine officers about this subject, but they didn't want to know. Uh, tragic stories, Mike, but uh, very brave ex-military or former military personnel who were coming forward to tell us about these very, very strange conversations with, with supposedly the teams who were helping them. Uh, now, we received an email a couple of weeks ago. I'm sorry I couldn't find it to put it on screen uh, just before the programme, uh, giving us a bit of a hard time for not covering this story, so we'll cover it now. Uh, this is uh, from the Oxford Mail. Traffic filters will divide city into six 15-minute neighbourhoods 
uh, agrees highway, highways councillor. Now, of course, we've talked about uh, the idea of the 15 minute city or the 20 minute neighbourhood quite a number of times on the programme. We'll talk about it more in extra, but I just wanted to let people know what's going on here. Roadblocks, roadblocks stopping most motorists from driving through Oxford city centre will divide the city into six 15 minute neighbourhoods, a county council travel chief has said. And he insisted the controversial plan would go ahead whether people liked it or not, because that's democracy in action. Uh, and uh, we go on. Uh, people can drive freely around their own neighbourhood and can apply for a permit to drive through the filters and into other neighbourhoods for up to 100 days per year. This equates to an average of two days per week. The alternative is to drive out to the ring road and then back to the destination because this is being driven by climate change uh, and uh, policy. And therefore, what we've got to do is to make sure that people drive further in order to save the planet. But anyway, uh, a maximum of three permits a household will be allowed uh, where there are several adults with cars registered to the address. Um, so we'll have much more to say on this and other related policies uh, later. Uh, David, we can either get a response from you on that or you can keep it to extra or we can move on to the next uh, item. Uh, and and uh, so, so why don't we do that? Response to extra. Yeah. Okay, well, let's... Yeah, the, uh, the, the next item here is, the, is from the Courier in Dundee. Um, and it's regarding a Drag Queen Storytime event at Dundee Contemporary Arts Centre, and it's been cancelled. Uh, the Courier reports that Drag Queen feels defeated after being made to cancel the event. A performer who's forced to cancel a performance at DCA on Saturday shared the anger over the online abuse that was subjected to. Miss Peaches, age 23, was set to hold host Drag Queen Storytime, and we have a, a, an article on our website on that subject from uh, uh, Dr. Bruce Scott, um, where she would read stories to children and their parents at the Nethergate venue. Um, the DCA had been forced to cancel performance due to what they described as hateful and, and intimidatory behaviour of a small number of people online, leading the performer to feel unsafe. This is the this is the standard excuse that's given, but we've seen this over and over again. These events are being cancelled because people are speaking out. Speaking with a courier, Miss Peaches gave her reaction to the cancellation. She said, it's really just bizarre to me. The event was listed as a story time. I was doing nothing more than reading a book. So there we go. A couple of quick comments that were on the courier page. Uh, Morag Braun said, I feel sorry for Miss Peaches uh, and the grief she received. But the council run DCA is out of order, arranging for two to ten year olds. Uh, at an event as part of a transcendent event held by the D DCA celebrating those who experience issues with their gender. The DCA management thinks that toddlers should be celebrating those who experience issues with their gender is really quite staggering. I hope the DCA does not rearrange the event. An alien asks, why are these men so eager to present highly sexualized version of women to small children? Now, so uh, Miss Peaches didn't understand why there was opposition. I'm going to help her out here because we have here um, a paper uh, called Drag Pedagogy, the Playful Practice of Queer Imagination in Early Childhood by Harper Keenan and Little Miss Hot Mess, who was in one of the drag performers who started this all off in the United States. We have, an ex we have a little extract and it shows you what this is actually about. It reads, this is, this is the academic underpinning of it, it reads, Building in part from queer theory and trans studies. Uh, sorry, David. David, sorry, David, sorry. Your your mic, I think, has dropped uh, on somewhere, oh, and, and we can't we can't actually hear you at the moment. Oh, 
So we'll just be one second while David uh, sorts himself out there. Hey, sorry about that. Can you hear me now? Yes. Right. So okay. So, so this is this is from the under the the intellectual underpinning of the drag queen story times. It reads, building in part from queer theory and trans studies, queer and trans pedagogies seek to actively destabilize the normative function of schooling through transformative education. This is fundamentally different. Uh, this is a fundamentally different orientation than movements towards inclusion or assimilation of LGBT people into the existing structures of a school and society. As a practical as a practical example, in early childhood classrooms, consider the common practice of sorting children into groups of boys and girls. An inclusion stance might allow children to decide for themselves whether they'd like to be in a boys or girls group, whereas a transformative approach might work with children to inquire as to how boyness and girlness uh, are given meaning and the limits of these two categories and how people might organise themselves differently. So they are destabilising the entire normative function of schooling. That is what it's about. Um, and we have here, uh, for people who want to know more, there's a new discourses podcast on this called uh, Groom of Schools, um, podcast for Drag Queen Storytime, that, that analyzes that paper in detail. Okay, thank you for that, uh, uh, David. I want to say incredible, but of course it's not because it's easy to see. But we contrast uh, that aspect of, sorry, protection of children with just these two headlines because the BBC is very puzzled that we've now got dozens of Albanian children, uh, child migrants going missing. Uh, the second headline here, child migrants, 116 children missing from UK hotels. We had exactly the same problem when Syrian children came to UK. Uh, but this is all too difficult for the BBC. They can't really work out how these children could come here without parents and how they could subsequently disappear. Uh, and finally, David, then uh, Neil Oliver. Yes, Neil Oliver, many, many of our viewers will also be catching the, the pieces to camera by Neil Oliver on um, such things as Drag Queen Storytime and, and, and all other cultural matters. So here he is on GB News, uh, quoted, Our heritage and history, our culture, our society, our communities, our identities as men and women, as sovereign individuals, all of it is being undone. This is deliberate and must be resisted at all costs. And that's, that's essentially the position that the column has had for many years, that this is an attack on, on our society and requires, our, uh, requires us to resist. Jerry Hassan, um, cultural commentator in Scotland, uh, SNP supporter, you can tell that because he's got a Ukrainian flag in his bio, um, it says in response, WTF, because the left can't say anything without swearing, uh, with ultra-right hate. What's up with ultra-right hate preacher Neil Oliver? As he descends into fascist imagery, demagoguery, where is it going to end? At the moment, there's a tiny audience for this in the UK and elsewhere, but there's a rising ultra-right advocacy and normalisation of fascism. So, this is a couple of things, right? Firstly, uh, Jerry Hassan believes in the collectivization and the state and, and everything inside the state and nothing against the state. Jerry Hassan is a supporter of fascism and Neil Oliver, who's talking about the individual, isn't because Jerry doesn't know what the words mean. Um, but I just thought it was, it was it, it's a, an extremely um, 
hot-headed, raging response to the Oliver's reasonable, measured, and although heartfelt, um, quite moderate positions. Um, and it, I just want to point out there's a reason for this, right? And the reason is um, a, an ideology about tolerance that comes from Herbert Marcuse, um, the uh, cultural Marxist that's generated a lot of the things that we're seeing in society now. And he wrote a, a paper called Repressive Tolerance um, I, that appeared in uh, a critique of pure tolerance. And what repressive tolerance is, is basically the principle that they're going to tolerate anything from the left. Doesn't matter how kooky, it doesn't matter how wacky, it's okay, it will be considered, it will be discussed, it will be looked at as a sensible proposal. And things from the right I, are not to be tolerated. They are, they, you must keep as much rage, anger and, and, and on them as possible. And this is what Jerry Hassan is doing to Neil Oliver. It's called repressive tolerance. That's what it is. It's a Marxist trick. Everybody, please don't fall, fall for it. And just to illustrate the nature of this thing, with a final closing cartoon, we've got uh, in the middle of ripping someone's heart out on an altar, um, the, 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 the indigenous people are disturbed by some uh, white uh, settlers from Europe, and they say, oh, look, here comes the far right. And uh, I thought that summed up uh, Neil Oliver's position uh, rather well. Troubled times, uh, David, but it's becoming easier and easier to see that there is actually an orchestrated plan in these policies that are unfolding. And as uh, Mark Anderson is showing us, we can see that uh, transnationalists, its global agenda, hopefully we can do more on that um, in subsequent UK Column News programmes. That's it for today. We will be back for extra time in a minute. Uh, we just want to say a very big thank you to all the UK Column viewers and to everybody who is supporting us with a membership. Don't forget those um, memberships that you might choose to buy for a very good Christmas present. Bear in mind the postal problems mean probably uh, early. early. <laughs> Get in there early. Yeah. That's it for us today. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye.